Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ about the challenges in primary care. Um, I'm Navjoy Lada, clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And this week we are looking at menopause and HRT, one of the hot topics in conversation and certainly in primary care in recent months and weeks. Um, And we'll be um, listening back to some of the content from our recent Known Unknown webinar on the menopause and discussing some of what we know, what we don't know, and trying to find a way forward through the uncertainties of menopause. Um, With me as ever are um, Jenny and Tom. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Navjoy. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And hi, Tom. Hi, I'm Tom Nolan. I'm uh, also a clinical editor for the BMJ and uh, a sessional GP. Uh, And I've just done a a 20-minute Peloton ride, and I'm feeling very energized and and dizzy, which which is exactly how I felt after I went to a recent uh, talk about menopause. So feeling (laughs) good about this? There we go. I thought you were going to say this is how you're trying to empathize, empathize with people who are going through the menopause no, and how no, you might feel when they not no. sort of hot and flushed. No. Okay. <laughs> um, we're back to plugging Peloton in our podcast, I, I see. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. you're still or trying to get freebies sponsor. or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. Well, um, when uh, the BMJ announced they were doing this uh, series of webinars on known unknowns and that um, menopause and HRT would be the first in the series I immediately was kind of interested and intrigued because I think there's been so much you know in the news on television about how um the management of menopause well just can kind of conflicting views on it like the management of menopause is either sort of you know pushing too much towards overdiagnosis, or conversely pushing too much to kind of under management and lots of uh, women have feel like they're sort of fending for themselves and not being heard by their by their doctors and clinical teams and so it just feels like one of these I don't know fascinating areas but also for GPs who are you know on the on the front line of a lot of this and and trying to navigate their way through it just a really relevant topic so we've got some clips from the webinars that we'll be uh, listening back to and reflecting upon but before we get into those I just wanted to ask you both you know What's what's your experience with all of this? Do you feel it's become a kind of contentious topic or is it just, you know, same management as ever? Yeah, I think it's been a really interesting year or so, hasn't it, with a lot more people coming to see their GP for advice on on menopausal symptoms and wanting HRT. Um, I remember one person coming in and just sat down and said, um, I, w- I want uh, HRT, I want to speak to an expert about it. And and I was like, well, yeah, you're probably right. I'm not, I'm not the world's expert, but I think I have some, something useful to offer. But I think that that for me at least reflected a, um, a probably a fair criticism of GPs that some of us, maybe more than male doctors, I don't know, but um, haven't been quite as up to speed on the detailed management of uh, menopausal symptoms. And so um, I think, like many, I've learned a lot about about HRT in particular over the last year. And I'll feel like I'm in a much better place to to help help people um, to make decisions on that. But um, yeah, I haven't seen much of the the kind of counter argument. I suppose people maybe don't go to see their GP if they feel like this is a 
something that's been medicalized but um yeah. i've seen mostly it's been promoting the idea of menopause and drug treatment of menopausal symptoms yeah yeah and it, I, I find it interesting when you have been doing general practice for a while and over kind of the course of a career how the sort of trajectory of hrt in particular and our approach to using it and whether it's kind of been in vogue or out of vogue I think that has varied quite a lot for, um, over time and so that's been quite interesting to kind of track and I can understand why GPs might you know your your mindset might be to kind of not use HRT because of some of the risks associated with it but now there's much more of a push to kind of you know if you know you, do, you obviously don't want women to suffer as well and providing your obviously providing lots of information about the benefits and harms then you know it's it's patient-led choice but um Jenny I'm interested to know if this kind of debate and kind of level of debate is this just in the UK or is this something you've experienced as well I was nodding along with you and after when you were talking about the kind of change in the way that we think about this and talk about this with patients over time and that's very much my experience across several countries um where I've practiced I think there was initially a real fear around HRT. Um, and I'm thinking particularly about the U.S. context. And we've seen a shift toward, you know, women really feeling validated in their symptoms and wanting to access treatment that helps those symptoms and perhaps, you know, a kind of move away from that fear. Um, certainly this is something that we see all the time in general practice in New Zealand. Um, I saw less of this in Cambodia. I'm not sure exactly about the availability of HRT there, but I suspect it is not as routinely available. And that would be consistent with, um, an analysis article that the BMJ published in 2022, right around a, a year ago which discusses the medicalization of menopause and how our cultural expectations of what the experience will be can often feed into people's ideas about whether they need to treat it with HRT or whether it needs to be managed in another way or even how they actually experience those symptoms. And I'll um, touch on that article again later. Hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, that change over time. And I guess one of the things that um, we were just alluding to is the need for GPs to kind of keep up to date with uh, the evidence, the kind of, you know, the, um, and the, I don't know, just clinical side of things. So just a question for you both. Um, how how up to date do you feel on, um, you know, on, on menopause and, and what happens and what it all means, Tom? Well, I did this course. Well, it wasn't a course. It was, um, oh, yeah, of course. You're yeah. probably the most up-to-date well, of all of exactly, us. exactly, but <laughs> it was very good. It was, by, it was from a GP, um, Helen Barnes. She's a, a GP of a special interest in, in menopause. And uh, and it's actually one of the best uh, teaching sessions I've been to for, for a long time. Wow. Um, really detailed, really evidence-based, um, you know, really talking about the, you just mentioned a lot of the time about, you know, we've only got observational data for this and that. So, you know, we've got to share those uncertainties with patients and really sort of, I was very impressed with, with that side of it. And um, yeah, it left me really, really feeling a lot more confident about um, about how to manage menopausal symptoms. 
and confident that actually there are people who really know what they're talking about as well. Oh, great. Well, this segment that's coming up, you you can uh, you can fact check it for us. Or, uh, <laughs> okay, right. I've got my notes. I took I took some detailed notes for my yeah, appraisal. Yeah, augment, so augment I'm, it. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Jenny, how about you? I feel reasonably up to date. Um, again, you know, saw people to discuss HRT a lot in practice in New Zealand. At the same time, I have remaining questions around the extent to which the pharmaceutical industry is driving a lot of the kind of push for an mm. increased prescribing rate of HRT and where that does or does not actually reflect the status or quality of the evidence base. Mm. Well, I think you'll be interested in this uh, clip coming up from Martha Hickey, who um, spoke as part of the webinar that I've referenced already. Um, and it's just going over some of the basics of menopause, some of the kind of, um, you know, what, what are people's experiences and, and what does the evidence say about um, the, the need for treatment? Um, so let's take a listen. Thank you for inviting me to speak at this BMJ uh, podcast on known unknowns. My name is Martha Hickey. I'm a professor of obstetrics and gynaecology at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And my clinical and research interest is around menopause. These are my declaration of interests. So known unknowns in menopause, I hardly know where to start. We, we don't even have a consensus about what menopause is. Is it the final menstrual period or is it a year after the final menstrual period? There are different definitions. So what's all the fuss about menopause? There's certainly lots of um, fuss going on in the UK at the moment. Um, for, an, for an experience which is common to all of those born female at birth, I think it's, the, it's almost the only experience common to all females. And around 25 million women will transition menopause each year. The biology is ubiquitous, but the experience varies considerably. So first of all, uh, for known unknowns, why does menopause even happen in the first place? Well, nobody really knows. Um, it's thought to be due to the loss of ovarian primordial follicles. And these are all established during prenatal life in the fetus. And around about 30 weeks gestation, they nearly all die. And, and nobody knows why that is. And once um, that child is born, those ovarian follicles can never be replenished. So it would be fantastic to understand what actually regulates the size of that primordial follicle pool um, in, in, during intrauterine life. So some women experience menopause that is premature or early, and this is another area of a huge uncertainty. It's estimated that about 10% of women have premature or early menopause. Um, some of it's iatrogenic due to chemo radiation, normally for, for cancer treatment, or sometimes due to surgical removal of the ovaries, a zoophorectomy. But in most cases, the cause is unknown. It may relate to that size of the primordial follicle pool and I talked about during fetal life, but nobody really knows. So another uh, chestnut 
is uh, what symptoms menopause actually causes. Well, about between 10 and 40% of women don't have any symptoms apart from changing their menstrual cycle. Uh, we don't really know how many women have severe symptoms. It's sometimes estimated as about 25%, but more recent data suggests it's more like 16%. And we've got no way of working out which women are going to have terrible menopausal symptoms that are distressing or prolonged, and which women are going to have no symptoms. There's certainly huge variation by race and by geography. So overall, although biology is ubiquitous, there is no universal experience of menopause around the world. So HRT, hormone replacement therapy, is a big area of controversy in the UK and worldwide at the moment. And it is a very effective treatment for vasomotor symptoms. It will reduce them by about 80%. Unfortunately, when you stop, about half the women who take it will have resurgent symptoms. And of course, there are effective alternatives to HRT now. There are non-drug methods like cognitive behaviour therapy, or there's non-hormonal prescription medication. And the efficacy of that is creeping up. It's still lower than um, HRT, but with the introduction of new medications such as fesalinotant um, recently registered in the US, we are going to see more effective targeted therapies. And whilst women might start HRT when their hot flushes start during the perimenopause or menopause transition, we actually have no data on the efficacy or safety of it until they reach the postmenopause, which is concerning. And whilst um, it's commonly stated that HRT has all kinds of preventive properties uh, in terms of chronic disease and long-term health, the best data available on this, the United States Preventive Task Force in 2022, did not recommend HRT to prevent any chronic diseases. So just to summarise, that's it. Hot flushes, no miracles. So who should actually take it? Um, in the UK last year, about 14% of women were thought to be taking it. And, but the, there is certainly discussion that that might be going up. So it's interesting to know uh, why, since 80% of women are symptomatic, why don't they all take HRT? And that's another unknown. Do women not take it because they can't get it or because they don't want it? Looking back to 1975, when uh, HRT was first introduced and, and widely available, The Lancet quoted that the prospect of a universal treatment of a large sector of the female population is clearly a, a glittering prize of the pharmaceutical industry, and hence it was. And what about testosterone, the other hormone? Well, endogenous testosterone, as produced by the ovaries, does not fall over the menopause transition, so it's not like estrogen and progesterone. Um, if you take testosterone, um, it does improve libido, but the effect is actually quite modest. Um, and the recommendations from last year, only, you know, 2021, recommend only giving testosterone to women who've got a, a, um, a psychiatric condition called hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And it has no other clinical role. So again, the effect of testosterone is one more sexually satisfying event per month. That's it. So how can we support women better through the menopause transition? I'm going to just propose that we take a different approach and consider how we can empower women to manage this normal life stage. And these are some, some components of, of empowerment. 
giving women realistic and balanced information, giving them tools to help them choose the right treatment. Those things don't exist at the moment. Um, access to a cl clinician who's prepared to listen with empathy and make decisions with them. Access to effective treatments even when they want them. And joined up care for prevention of chronic disease that doesn't rely on hormones because they don't work. And of course, practical support in the workplace. And that is changing in the UK and that's fantastic. So we could also think about celebrating the contribution of older women. 40% of our workforce are women over 50. Uh, we've learned from COVID that most essential workers, like those in health and education, more than 70% of those are women and a large proportion also of the voluntary sector. So we can change the workplace to accommodate menopausal women. Um, at the moment, coping at work is one of the main reasons women take HRT. So another approach would be to change the workforce so they don't need to take hormones just to be able to do their job. We can also challenge the narrative of menopause as a hormone deficiency disease like diabetes or thyroid disorder, as has been very widely promoted. And I think most importantly, if we are going to frame menopause as a catastrophe, we need to think hard about the message we're sending to younger women who will inevitably face their own menopause. Thank you. Okay. Great. One of the things I was struck by when I first heard that was actually how the things we don't know, like when menopause will happen and who will be most troubled by it, which is just to me the like most fundamental question. And uh, and yeah, we don't we don't have a good way of of sort of knowing or understanding that. So I think I think for me, I, I just found it a really useful reminder of yes, there's there's lots that we as GPs we feel like we should know and uh, we need to keep up to date with, but actually there is just a lot that is uncertain um, on this topic. That stood out to me as well, Navjoy, um, especially given the diversity of experiences that people have and the range of factors that go into determining what that experience will be or feel like or mean for people. It is shocking that we can't predict when it will happen and really can't kind of even use things like female relatives experiences to predict. Uh, and the other thing about um, actually how long symptoms, based, you know, menopausal symptoms will, will last for, I think that's always struck me as a, yeah, like, really, that'd be so helpful to know, wouldn't it? I'd imagine for, well, for, for any symptom, if, if, if you know it's going to be a week, a month, a year, yeah. then I think that's going to make a big difference to your decision making. Um, yeah. And coupled with that, what sounded there like quite a high rate of like relapse of symptoms when, when it stops. Um, I don't know how that compares to the kind of natural history. So you might be, might be 50%, but would it be still be 50% if you took an alternative to HRT or or no, no um, drug treatment. Um, feels like we we aren't. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like enough information to, to give to people to make an informed decision about a very long, often a very long term treatment. Yeah, I agree, and and I think um, you know that coupled with the fact that as we were just talking about, there aren't great decision aids even on what we do know to kind of guide and support these conversations in practice. So I think it's it's not surprising that, w you know, women who 
um, consult about this might feel that, you know, that there's not much information there or not much um, support there. But, you know, in some cases that doesn't exist. And in some cases, just the tools aren't there to kind of do that well um, as well. I agree. I was also going to say what always strikes me about practice is just the overwhelming overlap between the symptoms of menopause and the symptoms of other conditions. Um, And given all of these unknowns, it makes for very challenging sometimes conversations because you're constantly picking apart these uncertainties. Are you having joint pain because of menopause or are you, you know, feeling exhausted for another reason, right? There are so many, um, different things that could contribute to give these symptoms. Very few that kind of point squarely at, at menopause. That's been a big thing in the last year that I've, I think through the the media exposure that this topic's had is that it's not just vasomotor symptoms. It's you know, a very long list of of, of um, symptoms that you should go and see your GP and ask if it's menopause. And I, I guess I, I'm uncomfortable with that, but I also see that actually for a lot of people that does actually seem to be the cause and is not helpful when your GP says, no, it's not menopause because you're not having hot flushes and, and um, whatever. Uh, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It really is. But that's such a good point. It's not helpful to women for our answer to just be like, no, because that, that doesn't, that doesn't do them a service. And it doesn't also reflect the true level of uncertainty that we have. You know, I mean, when someone is struggling with things like memory loss or sleep disturbance, um, I mean, again, so many different things could be contributing to those symptoms, to those experiences, but to not at least consider or open the door to the possibility that it could be related to the menopausal transition, I think is doing people a disservice. I, I don't want to skip to the, what's the conclusion that's usually at the end of every episode, which is, um, you know, we just need time to unpick things and go through things in detail and then, and then, you know, talk it through. But that seems to be the, the thing that makes the biggest difference, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I really appreciated actually Martha's sort of, you know, the concluding section, which was on what we can do to better support women. And I think a lot of it is, you know, that idea of feeling heard and feeling like you're being taken seriously. And that, you know, if even if we don't have the answers, that we have explored those and um, and presented some options um, as well uh, for things. And also, I, I think also that I'm really interested in this idea of how we frame menopause is a problem to what what Martha said right at the end about okay if we are presenting it as this sort of catastrophic moment in one's life what what does that mean for you know for for how we approach this topic and how people coming into you know young younger women uh, and people feel uh, as they approach this time it's uh I don't know it seems uh, <laughs> that that seems to me to be very difficult especially as we've just described how individual that experience can be as well. I wanted to make two points on that too, Navjoy. The first is, you know, the way in which medicalization begets further medicalization. And I'm thinking here about, you know, if you think about it in this kind of hormone deficiency way that Martha mentioned, analogous to thyroid disorder, 
then the implication is that people wondering if they're approaching perimenopause or menopause want to have their hormones tested, which is not evidence-based and not always a good use of resources. So there's one thing. And then the second thing to say is that I'm really interested in this movement and truthfully do not understand the extent to which this is a growing movement or a fringe movement. Um, But this kind of feeling among older women that, you know, finally they're free of the constraints of contraception or that they're free from like potentially, um, you know, some of the sexualization that occurs to younger women once they reach menopause. Um, And obviously all of those things are interpersonally mediated by a range of factors, but I, I am really interested to kind of hear more as well about how women can almost kind of I don't know, reclaim this as a source of power. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, Jenny, because when I, um, I joined the, this webinar in real time and there was a chat that was going on from all the participants. And one of the first things that was put to, um, participants who had gone through menopause was, you know, what was your experience and what was positive about it? And so many women, um, in the chat came back and said, actually it was, you know, in some ways, a liberating experience or for exactly the reasons that that you mentioned. So I think there is an important sort of element of trying to capture all the sort of totality of the patient experience, I guess, which is, you know, the, the narrative we hear a lot about is the sort of lack of support um, and lack of being heard. But actually, there is this other more positive aspect to menopause as well, which I think is definitely worth kind of highlighting and sort of celebrating as well, I think. Martha's talk was really interesting and I think was sort of set the scene well for all of the um, subsequent talks that came in um, that, uh, I keep wanting to call it COVID, known unknowns, and set the scene really well for the subsequent um, speakers who came next. So there was a talk on um, the uh, some uh, a researcher from Oxford University giving an overview of the uh, drug trials of HRT and running through the benefits and harms and what we know from the evidence. There was also a look at workplace interventions as well that can improve um, things for people with a menopause. And both of those are available um, on uh, our website for if you want to catch up with them. And we will link to that in the show notes. But what we're going to take a listen to now is um, Margaret McCartney, GP based in Glasgow, who is uh, talking about some of the issues we've already kind of touched on in our discussion about uh, medicalization and how the pharmaceutical industry, uh, where they come in on all of this. Um, And it was a really, really interesting um, talk by Margaret. Um, So let's give that a listen now. So I'm um, GP in Glasgow and um, I'm coming to talk to you about um, HRT, hormone replacement therapy, or um, as I think Susan has it right, um, menopause therapy, um, evidence and marketing. 
So here's my declaration of interest. I'm age 51 and female. Whether that is a declaration of interest, anyone should be concerned about it, I don't know, but that's that's the truth. Um, and I'm a GP partner, so obviously what's happening in terms of HRT prescriptions affects me um, as my workload was going to vary according to it. So that's a probable conflict of interest there. I'm a CSO career um, fellowship um, academic at St Andrews University. I do freelance um, media and journalism and my full declarations of interest are on whopaysthisdoctor.org. So over the last couple of years, you can hardly um, escape the headlines. They have been absolutely everywhere. And um, we've been told that HRT is not a danger to women. Quite a definitive statement there. Um, NICE told the press that HRT could benefit one million women. The Economist have um, made the claim that um, more women should take hormone replacement therapy. And um, then we had the crises of HRT running out in various high street stores. And you'll see the graph in the middle there from um, the Nuffield Trust showing that extra pale blue line on top with the annual change, the extra HRT prescriptions that have been happening in the UK. It's been going up and up and up. And at the same time, we've had lots of claims saying that HRT has health benefits beyond the menopause. So it has barely been out of the press. And we know there's lots of evidence for lots of conditions that what happens in the media has an effect on what the decisions are around health that people choose and make. So big publicity for the all-party parliamentary group on menopause back in October, which I wrote about for the BMG. And I was really um, impressed by the amount of media coverage that this report got. And the conclusions um, from it were, um, were pretty stark, um, basically saying that despite the evidence and the safe and effective use of HRT to manage symptoms, misconceptions around its usage and the perceptions of the dangers strongly prevail amongst women and healthcare professionals. So really a pitch there to be getting more women to take it and more professionals to prescribe it. Um, they were um, advocating that screenings of women over a certain age, I'm certainly in that bracket, could help improve diagnosis and treatment of menopause at an earlier stage. So really that's a pitch for every um, woman in Britain to be um, have some kind of intervention with a healthcare professional, which she would be um, assessed for or offered um, therapy for something that she may or may not be having symptoms from. They also made the claim that um, the NHRA should evaluate the evidence for testosterone with a view of getting this essential treatment option licensed in the UK. Now, from my reading of things, I don't think these are neutral statements. I think these are statements that are very much on the side of more HRT is better HRT. Now, it might be, it might not be, but I can't help but notice the fact that this report was researched by DGA, who are a public relations company, and funded by Bristol Myers Squibb and Astellas Pharma. So my concern is that that fact was hardly reported, if at all, in the, wide, in the wide press coverage that this report received. And I think that's important information that I would like to have known in order to interpret what the recommendations of that report were making. So on the left, we've got what NICE say are the indications for HRT. And on the right, we've got what the British National Formulary via the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Authority have to say about the indications for HRT. So NICE um, quite plainly say vasomotor symptoms, psychological symptoms, altered sexual function and urogenital atrophy as indications for HRT. And in the BNF, um, it talks about the, um, and I'll just put down in particular, HRT does not prevent coronary artery disease or protect against the decline in cognitive function and it should not be prescribed for these purposes. Experience of treating women over 65 years with HRT is limited. So pretty clear statements there and also making quite clear that there are risks in association with HRT treatments. And it's really important if you're ever making a decision about a medical intervention to have good, open, transparent, fair information. And I think these are good examples of fair information. 
However, I spent a couple of hours this morning on Google and I Googled in private HRT and HRT wellbeing. And I, I've found lots and lots of private um, clinics um, lots of organisations offering HRT out with the NHS. And I looked at claims that were being made for treatment of um, menopause using HRT. And this is um, treatment of um, normal menopause rather than premature menopause. And these were the kinds of claims that I found that HRT was being offered to treat or improve on private um, organisation websites. So we've got wrinkled skin, dry skin, constipation, diarrhoea, indigestion, itchy skin and scalp, weight management. Um, it was being offered for glowing skin, thicker, glossier hair to live longer for premature aging and in order to help stop heart disease. And these were all on websites which could prescribe HRT. There was somebody attached to these websites with a prescription qualification. So just rewind, let's have a look and see what the evidence says about changes in quality of life with the HRT. Now, I think there's very little, no dispute at all, that HRT really helps with vasomotor symptoms, hot flushes, night sweats and insomnia. Here's a good randomised control trial that randomised um, women with um, with women in normal in the menopausal age, so not premature menopause, um, to either HRT or placebo, published in the BMG. And you'll find really significant improvements for those top three symptoms. But look down the other ones, feeling depressed, feeling anxious, dizziness, aching joints or muscles, tiredness and headache. We really can't say with any degree of certainty that we can offer HRT as a treatment for those symptoms. And that's important information, I think, for women to know. And just of note, those clinics that I looked at that were offering HRT for all these other things, and you know, uh, you know, and I'm not saying all these clinics were, but certainly some of them were, were getting into the realms of menopause marketing. So you're a menopausal woman, you've come to us because you're not feeling good. Why don't you also consider vaginal tightening, aesthetics, but without looking done, a fat loss laser, treatment for the reduction of your cellulite, um, interventions in order to help you age more slowly, pretty amazing facial rejuvenation and thermocheck breast screening, which is really bunk. And all this stuff was being um, marketed through um, a kind of conduit of um, interventions that you could consider for your menopause. And I'm really concerned that what we're doing is we're making um, women aware of the menopause, but we're not actually giving women really good high quality information about the menopause so they can get help to sort out what actually would be helpful, what would be less helpful and what the potential risks and benefits might be. So as a reminder, this is what NICE says about managing menopausal symptoms with hormone replacement therapy. Right at the bottom, aim to prescribe the lowest dose for the shortest possible duration. What Susan said earlier, it stands true. And we know that's because there are hazards and side effects associated with HRT. Every woman is different, has to be an individual decision, but we should bear in mind that everything that we do in a medicine has got the potential for harm. Meantime, there's this wider narrative going on about menopause just now. Women are being offered um, over-the-counter blood tests to diagnose menopause earlier without being given good information about why that might not be hugely helpful or why blood tests might not be needed at all. And um, Women are being um, coming to their GPs, I think, there's various... Um, uh, uh, reviews and websites of their NHS GPs on private GP websites saying that I wanted to stay in it forever but my GP wouldn't let me I've had to fight with my GP to get it and I, I think this is really sad and really unfortunate because I, I think that most doctors want to do the right thing and I think that most doctors want to try and have rational discussions about what the pros and cons are and if when are getting um, unfair unhelpful information from some sectors about benefits of HRT that aren't actually evidence-based that becomes a real problem 
it becomes a real problem because we go over promising of multiple interventions. That's not fair. And additionally, the real problem of diagnostic overshadowing. If you've got a list of hundreds of potential symptoms that could be caused by the menopause, but we're not sure that they actually are, we could easily, easily miss significant pathology amongst that. That's nothing to do with menopause at all. And as Claire pointed out earlier, um, there's lots of people offering workplace solutions for the menopause. This is very much like the resilience treatments or interventions offered so often by the NHS. Instead of fixing the actual problems, and we tell individuals to sort themselves out and take on responsibility for problems that they may not have um, total control over. The other concern that I have is the lack of truly independent information out there. Um, NICE has got links to patient information sites which have got direct or indirect direct links with pharmaceutical organisations. I don't really think that's good enough. I think we're aiming for in independent information that we know is as least biased as possible. And I'm really concerned about this because I don't think we're good enough at sort of um, interrogating the evidence and interrogating claims that are being made. So this is on the NIHR website and um, it comes from a talk, I think, that Davina McCall, who I think is quite famous for having done various programmes about menopause. And she's quoted on the NHR website as saying that HRT um, is unbelievably good health benefits to it and particularly health of your bones. Yes, we agree about um, the 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 advantages while you're taking it. Um, but as has been explained earlier, that, that um, benefit does decline over time. It can help with heart health, brain fog and libido. Do we have evidence for the first two? There was a recent study connecting HRT to reducing the risk of Alzheimer's if you're prone to getting it. Well, that's a study down there that I've put a little screenshot from on the right. And I think we're very far from being able to say that HRT can prevent dementia. And as we equally heard earlier, um, the evidence about that when we look at it systemically is really not at all definitive. So in summary, what would help? These are my unknowns that are needing known. Um, I think we need independent fair information. Would that help? I hope so, but we need to test it and prove it. I think we need transparency about the potential for conflicts of interest. And I think we need much more honesty about our uncertainties, especially symptomatology, quality of life scores, and the potential harms of HRT. I think we should also represent more diverse experiences of menopause. It's not all terrible. I am the fittest and the healthiest and the happiest I've ever been. And um, we should not assume that women are a pathology in need of a prescription. But equally, we mustn't. We must listen to women's voices who are telling us that they do need help as well. The key is to be honest about what we know and honest about what we don't know, and make sure that we try and reduce our uncertainties with high quality research. Thank you very much. So, yeah, I thought that was very um, succinctly put by Margaret, you know, laying out all these issues that have kind of really contributed, I think, to just muddling this area and, you know, making what's known and unknown much harder to sort of navigate and ascertain when you've got kind of um, pharmaceutical industry funding, you know, reports and guidelines, you've got um, private clinics pushing all these other treatments alongside kind of potential treatment for menopause. Um, and yeah, as Margaret alluded to, all this diagnostic overshadowing as well, and sort of promising that certain treatments can help with uh, symptoms that there's just no evidence for. So no wonder, no wonder women are feeling let down by, um, you know, the health health services, and no wonder sort of clinicians are finding it really hard to kind of uh, manage all of this and and to sort of meet expectations. It's just, um, 
a bit of a mess, really. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. list of claims for the benefits of HRT. And by the way, the associated services that you may or may not want if you are oh receiving gosh. HRT is pretty shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Get your prescription with a side of vaginal rejuvenation. It's just absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it really highlights the commercialization in this space where we don't have such a grounding in evidence or where, you know, there's room to kind of move into a space that's not really as clear as it should be. Yeah. And I think, um, as our producer was just pointing out, I think these areas where you have not only underdiagnosis, you know, areas of underdiagnosis, but this kind of uncertainty and this kind of social issue where a group in society have not been heard, that there's a sort of so much uh, potential there to not just kind of correct, but like over overcorrect, but then also exploit that as well and mm-hmm. kind of jump in with all kind of other things that sort of piggyback on it as well, which um, is really worrying. That's right. So <laughs> I think um, I think Margaret's uh, kind of summary at the end of, of what we need of, you know, independent, unbiased, fair, good information. Um, and, you know, it, it, to me, just sums it up well. That's kind of where we're at, I think, and much more transparency around COIs and um, and reflecting from the earlier point as well. The time. And so, Tom, this is where your point that you made earlier comes in as well. The time to really. Uh, speak to patients when they come in to to kind of you know to be able to go through all of this in detail that's kind of what I'm left with and I guess that maybe a good um, test of an expert is is somebody who will tell you what isn't known about it rather than coming across like yeah they have all the answers yeah yeah what is it the Dunning-Kruger effect that um yeah a good a good expert will be able will know what they don't know and will be open about that as well oh, is, that, is that is there a name for that I, I didn't realize well I think the Dunning-Kruger effect is where is the sort of opposite of that where you you you're sort of isn't it the curve and if you're kind of too far down the curve you don't know what you don't know and you kind of are over overly confident about what you do know so uh, let's uh, all pay heed to that. <laughs> and I think in some ways it is, um, as GPs, I find that quite a useful message of actually there is all this uncertainty. And so, I don't know, sometimes I can feel like, particularly because menopause is so much, you know, under the spotlight, that I feel like I have to have all the answers. And actually, mm. sometimes the answer is it's just not known. And and to try and find a way, obviously, to sort of find a helpful way through that but um you know being much more upfront about that does seem really important the only thing that I would add to that is just that you know at the end of the day all we could you know I'm thinking back on so many of our prior conversations where the goal is not to persuade right the goal is really to allow the people uh, who we're seeing to really make the decisions that are best for them. And only they know their life context Mm -hmm. uh, as much as we might try and as many, you know, as much as we might get to know them over time. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Well, I think on that note, that's, uh, that's us for this week. And I would really recommend if anybody is interested in, um, in, uh, watching and listening to the uh, known unknown webinar on menopause to check that out and as I said we'll link to that in the show notes and also just to plug the known unknown series there's um they're so useful for GPs they're a kind of series 
exploring these uncertainties and areas that are often really difficult in clinical practice. And I believe we've got one uh, in the pipeline on ADHD, which is also another. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be revisiting that um, when that one comes out as well. So loads of um, really useful stuff there, I'm sure. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's it for this week. So thanks so much, uh, Jenny. Thanks, Navjoy. Bye for now. And thanks, Tom. Thank you. See you next time. So do like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>